This episode of Today on Broadway is supported by Heartbeat Opera. If you're a fan of Shakespeare, opera, or drag queens, or all of the above, then you don't want to miss the Heartbeat Opera's upcoming show. The indie opera company called Bold and Vivid by the New York Times returns for their annual Halloween drag extravaganza. This year's theme, All the World's a Drag, Shakespeare in Love with Opera. Join Heartbeat Opera for a fun night of eye-popping Elizabethan fashion, dazzling musical performances, and Halloween revelries. The show returns for just two nights, October 30th and 31st, at the National Sawdust in Brooklyn. Tickets on sale now at heartbeatopera.org. Welcome to Today on Broadway for Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. James, unfortunately, we have to start today's show out with some some sad news, so I figured we should probably just get into it. Emmy-winning stage and screen star Robert Guillaume passes away. Yeah, James, this is really sad news, as Guillaume was an absolutely incredibly dynamic performer. He passed away yesterday at the age of 89 due to complications from pancreatic cancer. <clears throat> Most people know him um, as a TV star. He won two Emmys, both for his work as the Butler Benson, first on the soap or on the show Soap in 1979, and then on the show's spinoff. Benson in 1985, but he also voiced Rafiki in the Lion King film, and he played the musical theater-loving managing editor Isaac Jaffe on Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night, which is where I kind of fell in love with him. But on stage, Guillaume famously was the first African-American man to play the Phantom in Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. While he didn't do the show on Broadway, he replaced Michael Crawford, the original Phantom, in the celebrated Los Angeles production. His seven Broadway appearances including uh, included being a replacement Pearly in the musical Pearly, playing Nathan Detroit in the 1976 all-black cast of Guys and Dolls, for which he earned a Tony nomination. And he also replaced in the title role of Cyrano in Cyrano the musical. Guillaume also played Sport and Life and Porgy and Bess multiple times, including in the New York City Center revival in 1964. Uh, James, as uh, I think I've talked about before, I loved Sports Night and, and Guillaume's Isaac Jaffe especially. And for me, that show never gets the praise that it deserved, but I've always kind of seen it as a necessary precursor to what became the West Wing. And I saw um, Linda Holmes from NPR mention today that in many, many ways, Robert Guillaume's character on that show was the forerunner for Martin Sheen's President Bartlett on the West Wing because he was the strong, steady, wise leader to a bunch of crazy people who run around with their heads cut off. So um I don't know that he'll ever get the respect that he deserves, but with a career that is so expansive and so varied as his, I'm glad to see that people are remembering him fondly uh, now that he's passed away. Yeah, I, uh, I overlooked the sports night thing and I, I, after you had mentioned it, remember it fondly. It's, uh, I have to go back and watch those, uh, watch sports night. Uh, it's such a great show. Yeah. Um, and Guillaume, you know, chose to make his life on the West Coast as, uh, in, in the later years. And I guess that's why we never got a chance to see him more recently back on Broadway, because he certainly was quite, quite the talent. Yeah, and if you remember back during Sports Night, I think it happened maybe at the end of season one or maybe at the beginning of season two, he suffered a stroke. And this was almost 20 years ago. And then they brought him back um, when he was able to and his character 
actually had had a stroke. So to see him still struggling to regain full control of his body and of his speech um, was really powerful. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of, well, I'll just speak for myself or why, why I was so drawn to him even more than just his performance, but to see him go through such a difficult struggle in such a public way, um, it, it was really moving and really inspiring. So for everybody who, if you knew Robert Guillaume or were just a fan of his, like James and I were, our, our thoughts are with you today. Uh, next up, the humans announces a national tour cast. Yeah, James, yesterday, producers Scott Rudin and Barry Diller announced both the cast and the cities for the first national tour of the Tony Award winning play, The Humans. Leading the cast will be John Boy himself, Richard Thomas as Eric, Pamela Reed as Deirdre, and Tony winner Daisy Egan as Brigid. And there are more that we'll have in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. The tour will kick off this November next month at the Seattle Repertory Theater before hitting Washington, D.C., Chicago, Minneapolis, our favorite metropolis, Schenectady, New York, <laughs> Boston, Des Moines, Cleveland, Charlotte, Dallas, Tempe, and San Francisco before wrapping up at the Amundsen in Los Angeles at the end of July 2018. Now, James, I really, really hope this does well on the road because, one, we love Daisy Egan and Richard Thomas around these parts, but two, because I would love to see more plays go on national tours. Obviously, there's not a ton of plays that can do that effectively, that can draw, like, I mean, hopefully the humans will or like Curious Incident of the Dog of the Nighttime did or Warhorse did. But I'm hoping we see this as a trend. Maybe they don't play the huge theaters. Um, these are playing you know, the humans is playing pretty big theaters. It's playing the Kennedy Center and the Amundsen where big national tours go. But it's also playing some smaller venues like Seattle Rep. So hopefully things like this Small Mouth Sounds is doing a kind of a regional theater tour. I'm hoping this becomes more and more of a trend so we can see first rate productions of these plays outside of New York. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, New Yorkers are kind of spoiled because we don't have to worry about is it going to get – is exactly. it going to show up at our regional spoiled. theater spoiled. within spoiled, 500 spoiled. miles of our house. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, as a New Yorker, I complain about going to the east side. You know, right. it's like all the way from the Upper West Side to the east side. I, I can't do it. I just can't. I'm – this planning this trip that's coming up here in a couple of weeks to New York is takes so much time and planning. And then I can't I, I've had to change my flight twice to accommodate things. I was originally going to come in on a Wednesday. Then I moved it to Tuesday and then something else came up. So I had to move it back on Tuesday. So I don't want to hear your kvetching over what side of the city a show is on. Jeez, my knees. <laughs> Hashtag first row problems. <laughs> New Yorker problems. <laughs> But I tell you, you know, 59 East 59, the little theater that could, is getting more West Siders to get to the East Side, even though 59 yeah. East 59 is not too far to the East Side. <laughs> All I'm right. Here. Uh, next up, after the blast at Lincoln Center Review Roundup. Yeah, James, Lincoln Center's latest LCT3 show opened up earlier this week, and I wanted to briefly touch on the reviews because this is a show that's really interesting to me. It was uh, written by actress and screenwriter and playwright, playwright Zoe Kazan, obviously the, the granddaughter of the great Elia Kazan, and it's called After the Blast. We've talked about it before. It's directed by Lila Nugabauer and stars Kristen Milioti. The show is scheduled to run through November 9th at the Claire Toe Theater. The reviews are pretty strong, James. Ben Brantley of The New York Times said, quote, 
quote, Miss Kazan, a vivid actress and the screenwriter of the charmingly fantastical Ruby Sparks, has fulfilled the first criterion of persuasive futurist fiction. She's created a slightly detailed alternate universe that is both an extrapolation of the world we know today and its own consistent entity. Sarah Holdren of Vulture, quickly becoming my favorite critic, wrote, quote, After the Blast has the smart, fully fleshed out trappings of a compelling dystopia story, but its heart and its strength is its examination of despair, the daily deadening tongue toward the tug toward the dark that for so many of us has become a feature of walking through this world. The story belongs to Anna, a superb performance by Kristen Milioti, who is devastating without ever overplaying a note and to the relationship she forms. This is the fun part with the overwhelmingly adorable helper robot that Oliver, her husband brings home one day. Our, our your friend, Adam Feldman of Time Out New York basically says that this helper robot uh, steals the entire show. He gives it four out of five stars. But anytime you've got a robot on stage, it's a big deal. Um, finally, Tim, Tim Tiemann of The Daily Beast, who I don't think we've done in a review roundup here before, wrote, quote, The play in some ways feels beached between a dark portrait of post-apocalyptic life in a relationship on thin ice and a comedy about a cute robot entering the domestic realm. It settles far from detrimentally for being all of these things and at a time when the possibility of the end of the world feels disconcertingly present. Uh, James, this is a show that seems very much an off-Broadway show. It doesn't seem like a show that would get any kind of, of transfer or anything. But to hear reviews like this gives me a little hope that this might be something I'll be saying in my neck of the woods sooner rather than later. Uh, Peter talked about it uh, this week on Broadway, and uh, he said very much the same thing about the robot, that the robot took on such human qualities. Uh, I, I, I forget the name of the actor who's voicing the robot. Who Do you know who it is? Uh, off the top of my head, I do not. Let me look here real quick. But it is voiced live. It's not recorded. It's yeah, not that's like what we were talking about. You know, yeah, 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 it's uh, it's quite interactive and in the moment and uh and Michael and Peter both commented how endearing the robot really was. And it's so uh, – what is that when you assign human characteristics to an inanimate object? I, I can't remember uh, the per- – Personification? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, maybe that's it. Uh, I, I can't think off the top of my head. But uh, uh, that was one of the big things about that. And uh, it seems like it. it's uh, – the, the Claire Tau Theater is so tiny – uh, that this could easily be a hard to get ticket. Yeah, I, this is one that I looked at for my trip, and it was sold out for the, show, the the slots that I had available, or I probably would have gotten a ticket or two. But um, I'm, I'm excited to see that it's doing well. All right. Uh, next up, Michael Moore. Funny, we talked about this yesterday, didn't we? Michael On Moore. Monday, really, yeah. yeah, Michael Moore releases a statement about the terms of my surrender. Yeah, James, I I still always want to say the terms of my endearment, which I think would be a really interesting sequel. But anyway, last night, right when we were getting ready to record, uh, Michael Moore released a statement that read, quote, my 100 performances on Broadway represent perhaps the most fulfilling experience of my career. Having the opportunity to play the Belasco for tens of thousands of New Yorkers and people from around, around the country and the world with a simple and urgent message has been one of the great honors of my life. And I am deeply moved to be so warmly embraced by the Broadway community. Broadway remains a powerful hub of American popular culture, and I plan on being back with both a new play and a new one man show soon 
As for terms of my surrender, there is no surrender. We'll be taking our Broadway show on the road next summer. Now, James, we mentioned this on Monday, like you said, and it just seems like a no-brainer to me. Moore is a regular on the speaking tours, whether it's doing college campuses or theaters around the country. So to bring this show to venues outside of New York, kind of a theme of this uh, this episode today, it, it just makes sense. He's already going to these places and doing something. It might as well be this show to kind of continue the brand of him being a, a Broadway personality now. Yeah, I think that that's a really great idea. And, uh, and you know, we would love to get Michael Moore back uh, on Broadway and we can't can't wait to see what he is working on next, uh, as he's been talking about. Uh, next, we have on-screen news. Wanted to tell us about that? All right, James. Well, there's a little bit of a transition here because Michael Moore's The Terms of My Surrender was directed by Michael Mayer, who's also apparently who he's collaborating with on this new play he's working on. And this next show is about something Michael Mayer has been working on as well, although it's I think it's been done for a while. But yesterday, Deadline reported that Sony Pictures has picked up the latest film adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull. This new adaptation features a screenplay by Tony winner Stephen Karam, the playwright of the, of the humans that we talked about earlier. And it's directed by the aforementioned Tony winner Michael Mayer. And it features a cast just... Us, that's just packed with Broadway alums, including Annette Benning, Saoirse Ronan, Corey Stoll, Elizabeth Moss, Brian Dennehy, Mayor Winningham, and more. There's no official date announced for this yet, uh, other than it will be released in 2018. If it's as good as what we're being led to believe, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up being um, towards the back quarter of 2018 to position itself more for an Oscar contention. Uh, but this sounds uh, like it could be just the mixings of everything great that we look for in a staged screen adaptation. And then in some other screen news, not big screen, but depending on the size of your devices, maybe fairly big. Uh, after weeks of speculation, it was officially announced yesterday that the great Barbara Streisand's latest concert, Barbara, the music, the memories, the Magic will be hitting Netflix on November 22nd, co-directed with Barbara and everyone's favorite diva whisperer, Richard J. Alexander. The concert played 13 cities across the country and featured a lot of theater songs, James, uh, including Being Alive, Papa, Can You Hear Me, Who Can I Turn To, Losing My Mind, Climb Every Mountain, Children Will Listen, Don't Rain on My Parade, People, and more. Um other than her Christmas album, James, and maybe one of her Broadway albums, I've never been a huge Barbara fan, but <gasps> with so I know, I'm sorry. It's just not, I, you know, I'm, it's not my generation of stuff, but her, her jingle bells don't, don't even come at me with that. That's my, that's, that's my favorite right there. But, um, but this is great. I mean, I, I know Richard J and, uh, he's, He's Richard J. So I'm sure this is going to be a great show and all the show tunes. I'm looking forward to checking this out when it hits Netflix uh, in a little under a month. Yeah, I think that that's great. And uh, uh, great to see it coming to Netflix. Uh, I wonder if we're going to see other types of things go direct to Netflix type of uh, Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, I think, where Netflix just spends – an absurd amount of money every year to have original content that it can control, like to the tune of five to six billion with a B dollars every year for original content. That way you don't run into the problem down the line of things like 
Disney pulling all of its content off of Netflix in about a year so they can start their own platform. Netflix very early on realized that to have a long-term trajectory for their platform, they needed to be able to control the content, not just be a host for other organizations' content. So things like this um, and having original series like Stranger Things, which is premiering its second season later this week, like that's Netflix's, uh, you know, future plans so i hopefully we'll see more stuff like this and even more broadway shows and stuff maybe more collaborations with broadway hd that would be great too i wonder if and did we talk about this before maybe that netflix would buy broadway hd well i think we talked about this someone there was an article that we talked about before that netflix was you know potentially the the giant that could squash the little bug that was broadway hd um i they could. I don't know if uh, the Broadway HD folks would be interested in selling or not, but I, you know, I think some sort of collaboration with them to have, um, you know, some sort of relationship, especially as we've seen Broadway HD do things with Ericsson and Amazon. Now, um, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. Maybe Broadway HD becomes the production arm, and they arrange everything from the Broadway side, and then Netflix handles the distribution. Um, so who knows if that'll happen? But you know, one, I'd love it because it would give more access to even more people uh, to see Broadway stuff. And two, maybe I can condense some subscriptions because I subscribe to a lot of stuff. (laughs) It's just, I mean, stop splitting it off, you know, come on now. All right. Uh, What's up in the recommendation section? All right, James, I've got uh, a couple things here. First is a new article from Salon, um, which is a a website that's related to, I believe the Washington post. Uh, But anyway, it's no, what's it connected to? Uh, Slate is the Washington Post. Oh, okay. Salon, I don't know what this is. Yeah, Salon came out as a news magazine, a, one of the first paid internet websites for uh, like a magazine format. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that they're independent. I'm not sure if they've consolidated somebody else, but Slate is Washington Post. Okay, whatever. Slate, Salon, yeah. uh, six mm-hmm. to one, half touch. Anyway. I love Salon now because they had a great interview with my favorite, Laura Benanti. Um, They talk about everything from uh, her being a new mother and working both on a TV show out in Calgary and then doing the rehearsals for Meteor Shower. She talks about how, despite the fact that, you know, they're co-starring in a show, how much she looks up to Amy Schumer and how much she just loves and respects her as a person and how great she's been working with her, talking about how her public, uh, from Laura Benanti's perspective, her own personal persona, especially being a new mother, she's trying to let people know that that stuff's hard and it's not easy and it's okay for that. And she looks at that as a way to kind of break down some of the misogyny that women have to be perfect at all times. And it's a really great article. She talks about, um, you you know, kind of the, the stuff that we talked about yesterday with Harvey Weinstein and stuff and all of the, uh, the, the sexual abuse and harassment in the, in the entertainment community as well. So it's a great read. You know, one of the reasons that I love Laura Benanti is that she's incredibly talented, but she's also incredibly smart, obviously incredibly funny as well, but very smart and very thoughtful and and not somebody that, as she says in the article, is just one thing. She contains multitudes and all of those multitudes are impressive. Um, Also, just tangentially, Michael Riedel had a new article last night that talked about, even though he'd already written about the projections for Amy Schumer's box office, he said he was wrong. He thought they would be good, but they're not good. They're great. Apparently, she's going to be on uh, on schedule to have a seven million dollar advance, which is pretty much the 
second best of all time or third best of all time for a straight play behind uh, Larry David and uh, Fish in the Dark, which is still the the, the pace setter, but also Helen Mirren and the audience. It's going to be right up there with Helen Mirren. So that's great. And maybe that's why I can't seem to get a ticket when I come to town to see it. Um, but then finally, James, the other thing I wanted to recommend was um, on Monday night, the public theater had a memorial service for the late composer, Michael Friedman, who passed away uh, just a few weeks ago. They had speakers, including Oscar Eustace, Daniel Kim, um, Kyle Brown, and they included performances by Michael Levine, um, Steve Rosen, Rebecca Naomi Jones, uh, Rebecca Naomi Jones. So um, they've got the full video of that memorial that is out now. So if you weren't able to make it to the public theater on Monday night, we will have that in the show notes if you want to check that out. All right. Why don't you get us out of here? All right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at Matt and subscribe to Sound Like a Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for uh, starting off your Wednesday with us. And Matt and I will be back and talk with you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.